Okay, well let's go ahead and come back together on this first day of December. And um, we are about to finish the book of Esther. So with some sadness, we will be finishing next week. We'll have our, our reading service, which we usually do at the end of um, preaching through a book. So we'll uh, finish up this book of Esther just in time for Christmas. So um, I'll ask you to turn to Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9. We're going to do chapters 9 and 10. Don't worry. Chapter 10 is only three verses long. <laughs> could sense the nervousness in the room. <laughs> 9 and 10. And communion. We're going to be here all day. Um, and since you can't get enough of him, I'm going to ask Jim Hall to come back up and read Esther 9 and 10 for us. So you follow along while Jim reads. By the way, I want to especially thank Pastor Andrew for inviting me to read this chapter with the ten sons of Haman and their names. I know you guys know them really well. They're kind of new to me, so uh, bear with me as I read through. All right, let's hear from God's Word. Esther 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the people." All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the city, it's the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also king, uh, killed Parashandra and Dalphin and Asapra and Portha and Adalia and Aristha and Parmishta and Erisai and Eridai and Verisa, yeah, the ten sons of Haman the sons of Hamadeath, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In the Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish, it shall be granted uh, you, and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa, gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. 
Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day of, of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts and food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep 14th, the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that they had turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, and that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. And Haman, the Agatite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this manner and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obliged themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall in disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim, Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the king of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Esther, Queen Esther ob- ob- obligated them, I'm sorry, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim as recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Thank you, Jim. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, you allowed that to be written 
2,500 years ago, partially for our good this morning, December 1st, 2019. So help us to grab a hold of what you have for us this morning. Make it clear in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we sang some Christmas songs this morning. Some of you were very excited about that. Some descendants of mine sitting in the second row were very excited about that this morning. We sang several songs, and I looked up the original words to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Anybody, is that anybody's favorite? Anybody want to claim that as a favorite? Okay, we've got a few that that's their favorite. All right, good. Joshua, good job. All right. We've got to hit everybody's favorite in the next four weeks, right? Notice the words that are in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's a beautiful song. It's haunting. It's in a minor key on purpose to represent the longing and the sadness of the children of Israel. After our story here in Esther, God is silent for 400 years. The people of Israel who have heard from the Lord for centuries no longer hear from him. And so the words to the song are so helpful for us to think about. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Second stanza says, O come, O come, O wisdom from on high, implying we need wisdom. We are foolish without your wisdom. The fourth stanza says, speaks of rescuing from the depths of hell your people save and give them victory over the grave. The fifth stanza says, make safe for us the heavenward road and bar the way to death's abode. What is the situation of these people? It is dire. The sixth stanza says, O come, O bright and morning star, referencing the book of Isaiah, and bring us comfort from afar. We need comfort. Dispel the shadows of the night and turn our darkness into light. And lastly, the seventh stanza says, O come, O king of nations, bind in one the hearts of all mankind. That's a nice wish. Bid all our sad divisions cease and be yourself our king of peace. The people of Israel needed a king. They needed a ruler. They needed a man over them who could bring about these things. Rescue, salvation, peace, blessing, restoration. They needed one who could not be impeached or commit impeachable offenses. They needed a perfect one from above. They did not set their hope on the next king because king after king after king after king after king had failed them. And so as we look at the closing of Esther, we keep in mind the theme of this Christmas time that we awaited a king and we still await the return of the king. So let's take a look at Esther chapter 9 and 10 today and see how the story wraps itself up. Last week, Pastor Ron talked about reversals, dramatic reversals. He referenced Hallmark movies, I believe, as well as a saga from a galaxy far, far away. Uh, We could have gone to Middle Earth and many other places. 
with those stories of reversals. And in chapter 8, we heard tell of the reversals. And in chapter 9, they come true. Chapter 9, they come true. The climax of the story awaits. And so in your notes, you should see that what we're seeing here first is that the people of God, acting in the strength of God, see the victory of God and celebrate the peace of God. And that is a historical event. And it's also a theme throughout scripture to which we also resonate with. That we, the people of God, must act in the strength of God to see the victory of God so that we might celebrate the peace of God. So number one in your notes, the people of God see the tables turned and receive help against their enemies. The people of God see the tables turn, turned and receive help against their enemies. They receive help because they are helpless. Yet in chapter 8, what we saw is although the original edict of the king, informed by Haman, called for a genocide of the Jewish people, there is now going to be a second edict that will be competing with the first one. And as we see the help that comes for the children of Israel, although the name of God, as we've mentioned many times, is not mentioned in the whole book, we see the hand of God in the background, moving things, even though he seems unseen. It is now the 12th month of the Jewish calendar, the month of Adar. So if we can go ahead and look at that calendar, Jeremiah, we have um, a, a help here. If you can see it, uh, what we see is that uh, in uh, the, as the story has progressed, everything began with Haman in the month of Nisan, the first month of the Jewish calendar. In the third month, there was the edict in chapter 8 that they, the Jews might defend themselves. And now they have had almost nine months to prepare for this. Okay, so when you read the book of Esther, especially if you're a fast reader, you're like, bam, 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 done, story's done. But what we're talking about here are, are months and months and months of waiting, of anticipation, of fear and anxiety. As the people of Israel prepare. They were, they had light and gladness. We saw that last week. And yet still there must be preparation. They didn't say, yay, Yahweh has saved us. And then do nothing. They said, yay, Yahweh, they probably didn't say yay, but Yahweh has saved us and let's sharpen our swords. Let us prepare. And so when the king's command and edict in verse one were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The thing that wasn't supposed to happen did, and the thing that was supposed to happen did not. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Well, what happened? It, it seems as we read the, the passage that the Jewish people had been preparing because now it was legal for them to defend themselves. They were put in a position where they were legally allowed to defend themselves against what was coming. So notice what happened. Because of the way that the, the law worked in the lands of the Medes and the Persians, the original edict that Haman had King Ahasuerus sign into law uh, was not revoked. It still was valid. You may slaughter the Jews on this day. But there was now a competing edict that said, the Jews may defend themselves against the slaughter coming on this day. 
And that's the situation that we find ourselves in. And the story initially just keeps us in the city of Susa. So that next picture, we have um, a map that shows you um, every time in the book of Esther where we have seen the, the phrase Susa the citadel, that is referring to the fortress, to the royal city, to uh, the place on the, the west uh, end of the map, Susa the Citadel. So it included the massive palace, it included a high place, the Acropolis, and it included the royal city. So nobility lived here. Um, the harem, the king's harem was here. Um, the common people did not live here. They lived in the city um, to, you're right, okay, to the east. What we see here is that the fighting initially happens in the fortress. Okay, so you action movie guys, this is the fun part, okay? This is where in the actual fortress itself is where the fighting occurred. So you can, if you use your sanctified imagination, right, don't make stuff up, but if you're thinking about how this might have looked or felt or been, they were in a tight spot, literally, and both the enemies of the Jews and the Jews themselves were literally gearing up for this day. So there was, there were strategies, there were tactics, um, there were, uh, weapons being distributed. What happened? Verse two tells us that they gathered. And it also tells us that not only did this happen here in Susa, but zoom out, it happened throughout the empire of King Ahasuerus. All over the empire, where, wherever there were Jews, they gathered together, they banded together, and they fought. They, they went to, verse 2, notice, lay hands on those who sought their harm. So before we get too far, there is an ethical quandary that's brought up about what happens now. Because we're about to talk about slaughter, the slaughter of people and a party afterwards. Okay, generally frowned upon in our uh, day and age. But what we're talking about okay, is life and death, life or death, for the Jewish people. They gather together, they band together, and they fight. Notice, they don't just indiscriminately go out and attack and fight anybody. They fight those who seek mastery over them. This is a self-defense, okay? And there are those who argue against this. I just don't think you can get there from the text. Um, the enemies of the Jews are the ones who are targeted here. No one could stand against them, in verse 2, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. Now, the story can seem rather secular to us because there's no mention of God. But what is this fear? <laughs> well, if, if we read any other part of the Old Testament, this must be and was understood by the original readers to be the fear of the Lord. This happens throughout the Old Testament. The fear of God comes upon the enemies of God and leads to victory for God's people. You can see this throughout um, the Old Testament, starting in the first five books and then especially into the conquest of Joshua, the times of the judges, the times of Saul and David. When the fear of God comes upon a people, it means victory for the people of God. The fear of them had fallen on all peoples. Why would they be afraid of this ethnic minority who didn't even have their own palace, their own king anymore? Why be afraid? I would argue that what the author is trying to do with what he's saying is letting us know that God is at work behind the scenes, even though it does not seem like it at first. How could this occur? How could this happen? The fear of them. Now notice, notice verse 3. Here is one of the ways that it happened. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews 
for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. So notice what happened. There was an edict from Haman and the king that said, this is law. Slaughter the Jews on this day that's coming in the future. You may do this. Access granted. Now, what has happened is that the people of God defend themselves, they arm up, and in those intervening months, the the tide turned as far as public opinion because the government went from hostile to the opposite. The pendulum swings and the, the government and the officials are helping the Jewish people to prepare in some way for this attack. Why did this happen? For the second time in two verses, we see the word fear. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. During the intervening period, Mordecai has been elevated. Haman is gone and Mordecai's star rises quickly. His influence spreads fast. And because of that, the fear of the Jewish people and the fear of Mordecai falls on the people's. So, how did this happen? Political maneuverings? Possibly. Or is there a hidden hand moving behind the scenes? How could this be that a generation after a Jewish exile brought from his youth to Babylon becomes King Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man, essentially, and then his grandson, Belshazzar's right-hand man, and then stays until the time of the Persians, survives a lion's den experience. And then a generation later, another Jew, another ethnic minority, another exiled person becomes a second in command. Does that make sense? That doesn't make sense. What's happening here? God is at work. Verse 5, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. And then we get a report that in the fortress itself, in Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. So this is a, a very large military endeavor inside of the fortress. 500 men were killed. 500 attackers of the Jews were killed. And then we get all those names that Jim bravely slogged through. In verses 7, 8, and 9, the ten sons of, sons of Haman. And there is some indication that, that the Jews are not finding Haman's sons. It seems that Haman's sons joined the enemies to kill the Jews, which makes a lot of sense. Their father has been impaled, killed because of Mordecai. And now it seems that the sons of Haman join in and they are found and killed. And notice the end of verse 10. But they laid no hand on the plunder. Several things are, are happening here. But what we see initially is that what the enemies of the Jews meant for evil, God meant for good. And, and that's not just me picking and choosing somewhere else in the scriptures. Isn't the story of Joseph very, very similar to this story? The story of a slave exiled from his homeland rises to become the second in command in a foreign kingdom? Huh. We've seen this one before. It's a remake. <laughs> now this is the faithfulness of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, isn't it? It's on display again. All the way back in Genesis 12 when God called Abram. By the way, there were no Jews. There's no such thing as a Jew at this time. God calls Abram, makes him the first Jew, 
right? Starts a new people out of this pagan from Babylon. And he promises that Abraham and his descendants would be blessed. And not only blessed, but God also promised to curse those who dishonored Abraham's family. Haman did not know what he was getting himself into. He was entering a 1,500-year-old war with Almighty God, and he lost. How faithful is your God? Because he is the same God. The God of Sharon, and the God of Carlos, and the God of Danny, and the God of Lorraine, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the kind of faithful that loyally keeps his word to his friends and family, watch this, for generations. Like he kept his promise, not like, I'll return this book, like in you know three weeks to the library. No, he kept his promise to the great, 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 great plus grandsons of Abraham. This is how faithful God is. Do you know this God? Do you have trust in this God? Do you know that he'll be faithful to you no matter what? He has shown himself to be faithful over and over and over again, including to these Jews who were under threat of death. I pray that if you've come this morning and you don't know this faithful God, that today would be the day he changes your life. Now, as the Jews act in self-defense, I want you to notice verse 10 and verse 15 and verse 16. Look at how they end. Look closely. 10, 15, and 16. There's a refrain here. There's a chorus. It all ends the same way. They laid no hand on the plunder. They laid no hands on the plunder. They laid no hands on the plunder. Why is that in there? That's repeated three times, folks. That's not an accident. What's going on? Well, point number two in your notes, the people of God show almost unimaginable restraint in their self-defense. Now, notice, go back to chapter 8. Look what the edict of Mordecai actually said. What the edict said in verse 11 is that they allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather, defend their lives, destroy, kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included and to plunder their goods. Nine months before, it was all over the empire that it was legal for the Jews to destroy these people, their wives, their children, and take their stuff. And when it comes time for it to happen, they kill the armed men, and they don't take their stuff. What is happening? They were allowed to. It was legal. They could do it. In fact, this wasn't against God's law either because in certain circumstances, God allowed his people to plunder as well. When they come into the land of promise, they live in houses they did not build and they get wine from the vineyards they did not plant. What is happening? Well, I think this is an intentional... I can't prove this, but I think that is an an intentional act on the part of the Jewish people to make up for what their forefathers did wrong, namely Saul. We have Haman the Agagite, descended from Agag, the Amalekite, the first people that attacked the children of Israel on their way out of Egypt. This is their most ancient enemy. Haman wants to finish the job. He's finished instead. 
but they try to continue it. And what happens? The children of Israel fight back and they succeed where Saul failed. We don't have time this morning, but in 1 Samuel 15, Saul was ordered by Samuel from God through Samuel to go and attack the Amalekites to absolutely wipe them out. What does Saul do? He pretty much wipes them out. Except for the best stuff that he plunders. Such as the king named Agag. And, you know, the best cows and the best sheep and the things that, man, you just really wouldn't want to ruin this and kill those things. I mean, God, we could use them for God. Except God told you not to do that, Saul. That's what Samuel says, right? He listens to the voice of the people. He listens to himself. He does not listen to God. And instead of destroying it all, he takes what is not his. And this time the Jews did it right. Unimaginable restraint. Can you imagine people who are going to attack you? You fight back and then you don't touch their stuff. When you could acquire it for yourself to keep you and your people safe. Maybe to make enough money to go back to the promised land. No, the, the Jewish people exercised unimaginable restraint. And in so doing, they, in a sense, correct Saul's ancient failure. Esther tells the king that she would like the ten sons of Haman to be hanged on the gallows. Why? Probably as a deterrent. Probably as dishonor to the family of Haman. In a a culture where honor and shame are so important. And to show God's victory. Now we, the people of God, do not plan to achieve things this way anymore. We are not called, as the people of God, to slaughter anymore. Notice, it was not wrong for them to do this. God commanded his people at times to kill. Can God do that? Why do we have missionaries? Do we think people are going to hell? Can God do that? Yes. However, God in the Old Testament is working through a national people, a nation. He's working through primarily the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has government and laws and borders. The people of God now... As God, in a sense, restructures the kingdom on earth, now includes people from all nations. Praise God. How many of you are Jewish? Who's Jewish? There's a few of you raising your hands. That's fantastic. We're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're a part of us. Look how many Gentiles we are. That's great. Lots of Gentiles. Father Abram had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right hand. Okay. Do you, do you see though what, what God has done? He has now through Jesus conquered and now is no longer, it is no longer necessary for God's people to win military victories. It is now a time for God's people to achieve spiritual victories over the death that will send people to hell. We are armed with new weapons. We have the armor of God. And so we must understand the difference between God's working in the Old Testament and God's continuing work in this new covenant age. 
Well, we see in verse 16 that not only did this happen in Susa, but it happened throughout the land. In fact, there were at least about around 75,000 enemies of the Jews were killed by Jews gathering in Syria, in Lebanon, in Turkey. I'm using modern day names, right? In Iraq, in Iran, in Egypt, all over the kingdom, the Jews are defending themselves. 75,000 die. The Jews lay no hand on the plunder. And then there's a day of feasting and gladness. They celebrate. Verse 18, the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th because Esther said, I think there's still some pockets of resistance, so we think we need an extra day to fight. In Susa, they had an extra day to fight. Throughout the rest of the empire, it just took one day. And so part of the reason that the book of Esther is written is because some Jews who lived in rural places and and out-of-the-way places celebrated Purim, which we're about to talk about, on one day. And some of the other Jews, probably mainly those in Susa, celebrated on a different day. And some of these Jews, Jews people were like, hey guys, why are you celebrating on a wrong day? No, you're on the wrong day. No, you're on the wrong day. Okay, so Esther is partially written to take care of that. And it explains why. Because in Susa, the citadel and the city, they needed one extra day. That's why verse 19 says this. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So that's really important for us to see. Point number three, the people of God acknowledge his acts with feasting, gift-giving, celebration, and remembrance. The people of God acknowledge his acts with feasting, gift-giving, celebration, and remembrance. Here are some pictures of some of the feasting that happens on the Feast of Purim. Here are some Jewish people, kids, dressed up. Uh, the way that Purim is celebrated is often kind of like this weird mashup for us of Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas, okay? Which sounds awesome, <laughs> okay? Um, but this is what the Jewish people celebrate. There, there's some more. There's the president of um, Israel handing out um, gifts. Let's go to the next one. Uh, here's a grogger, a little noisemaker for the kids. When they go to the synagogue and they read the story of Esther, whenever Haman's name comes up, there's booing, there's hissing, and there's Okay, there's loud noises, so maybe you can't even hear the name of Haman. It's very interactive. It sounds fun. Let's do it. Uh, the next picture is a, a plate from the 18th century that is used specifically on Purim as a special. So you have your special china or your special uh, dishes for different holidays. They have their Purim dishes. Here are some more uh, young people dressed up gathering gifts with some um, pretty special uh, costumes. Let's go to the next one. Some little, there's a fireman in the background, and I believe a crossing guard, construction worker, or something going on back there. Next picture, we have um, just some, some there's, a, there's a cowboy going on on the left, Murica. And uh, the next picture is uh, what's also common on the Festival of Purim, which are plays to enact the story of Esther. Okay, there are some pictures to help you see what's happening. And we see in the text that this became a thing, all right? Uh, Verse 20, Mordecai recorded these letters, these things, and sent letters to all the Jews so that all the Jews were on the same page. Hey, guys, here's what happened. Here's what happened over here, and here's what happened over here, letting everybody know. They couldn't just check Twitter to see how the Jews in another part of the kingdom were doing. And so verse 22, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday... They should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. 
And, and essentially what happens in the next paragraph is this becomes an accepted practice of the Jewish people. The pushback might be, hey, Moses didn't tell us to celebrate this. Moses gave us all the festivals. Okay, But, but because of the kingdom-wide success and victory and celebration, collectively, the Jews began to say, hey guys, every year we should celebrate this. This is such a big deal that we should celebrate. Okay. By the way, I said Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. I forgot July 4th because it's also like it's some Independence Day uh, material going on here as well. Okay. This is what's happening. And begin to accept it. They remember, and it's called Purim because a pur is a, a lot, a, a dice that was rolled. Pastor Ron talked about this several weeks ago. And im, adding an im to the end makes it plural. And so it's Purim. Okay. They're celebrating that even though Haman rolled the dice to kill the Jews, that actually it came back on Haman and Haman himself was killed. His plans came back on his own head. So they call these days, verse 26, Purim. Now we see in point number four, which overlaps these verses, that the people of God will see sorrow turned into gladness. We see a theme that runs throughout the scripture. The people of God will see sorrow turned into gladness. That is a promise. It may not occur in your lifetime. Right? Decades centuries, God is faithful to his word to your great, 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 great grandchildren, but he is faithful and sorrow will be turned into gladness. Now, as we get to the, the, the end of the story, chapter 10, interestingly, does not mention Esther, which might indicate that she fades from view in Persia. Uh, perhaps uh, another wife of uh, Ahasuerus um, comes forward towards the end of Ahasuerus' reign. This is close to the end of his reign. Ahasuerus is assassinated, according to history, just a couple years after this. But we see that King Ahasuerus reimposes tax. Remember in the very beginning, he, he, he revoked the taxes because, hey, I got a new queen. Woo, no taxes. Okay, now he's reinstituting the taxes. Um, and he is, it mentions his, his vast empire, and verse 2 is very similar to the wording used throughout the, the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles about the extent of the reign of the kings. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? And lo, lo, notice how the story ends, okay? It's getting really close. The music is swelling. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. You're supposed to think about Joseph when you hear that. And Daniel, he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This is so important because what the people needed was shalom. They needed peace. And what God does throughout Israel's history is he raises up a man. He raises up a man to rescue and redeem. He raises up men and women at certain times to rise up and to rescue the children of Israel. Most notably Moses, Joshua, Saul, David, the kings are, are, are given authority to protect the people. What the people of God were always looking for, what they were always looking for someone, the seed of Eve, to rise up and rescue them and protect them. Mordecai, the Jew, is elevated to second in command. The subtitle of today's message was From Sorrow into Gladness. From Sorrow into Gladness. And this is a theme that runs throughout the Bible. It does not just appear here. If you read the scriptures closely, by the way, 2020 is coming. It might be a great time to restart your Bible reading plan 
do something in 2020. Do the rooted reading. Do a read the Bible in a year plan. Do a chronological plan. Read through something. Get regular into God's word. And you will see these things in God's word. Jesus said this to his disciples in John 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. He's talking about his leaving. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. I'm going to get, don't send me emails. It's the word of God. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Sorrow is related to sin and destruction and the brokenness that it brings. Gladness is related to the deliverance and resolution of sin's destruction and brokenness. So for now in this world, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We're called to do that. When someone is happy, when someone is rejoicing, we rejoice with them because we're family. When someone weeps, we weep with them because we're family. But this will not always be so. This is not the rhythm of life for the rest of eternity. We know how this big story ends. Because in Revelation 21, the Apostle John heard these words, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This Christmas season, we will experience pain and sorrow as some of us celebrate Christmas for the first time without somebody. And we will celebrate with great joy this Christmas because Jesus has come into the world. And as the men come and we begin to celebrate the Lord's Supper, let's think about what this means. This means that as we celebrate and taste the bread and the juice, just a little taste, we have a taste of what is to come and what has happened to bring in what will come. Jesus shed his blood, his body was broken on the cross 2,000 years ago so that now and forever we might feast with the Lord Jesus and all his saints. So Christians have called this the Eucharist. Some of you grew up in a tradition that called this the Eucharist. That means Thanksgiving, which is very apropos for this week. We also call it Communion. Because we think together of Jesus' sacrifice, not merely for me, but for us. And so, we're about to celebrate this. And if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here today, we welcome you. We're so glad that you're here. This is a family meal. And you're not part of the family yet. But we want to celebrate this as a family. So if you're not sure what's happening here, please just let the the crackers and the juice go by. And consider the song that we're singing. Consider the words that are said as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. As we celebrate because of victory that was done. As the Jews celebrated when God delivered them in the time of Esther, we celebrate because God has delivered us in our time from Satan, sin, and death. So this is a time of confession and commitment. It is also a time to allow God to examine our hearts. But it is also a time that we celebrate what Jesus has done for us, and we proclaim to the world what he has done and that he is coming again. So let's celebrate together. Lord, we long to celebrate with you in person 
in glory. And Esther will be there, and Mordecai will be there, and Moses will be there. And we who have trusted in your son, Jesus, we will be there. And Jesus will serve us himself. And we will celebrate and feast like we've never feasted before. We long for that day, Lord, and we long for others in our lives to join us on that great day at the feast. So, Lord, right now we proclaim you as we taste the cracker and the juice. And, Lord, let us not keep it here, but let us go out into the world this week and proclaim that you are the Lord. Santa and Frosty and Rudolph are nice and they're fun. But Jesus is the reason we celebrate and we put up lights because we needed rescue and he was willing to come and rescue us. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Help us to go from here with this reality fresh on our taste buds and in our minds and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.